Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, this week, we shift from some of our focus of the past few weeks, where we had uh, some drag performers, we had trans music um, that uh, reflected the non-binary, we've had filmmakers, and today we are going to go a little more to the sociological side of things. Um, we have a really fascinating book that we will be discussing. Um, the book is coming out in March. It is called Black and Queer on Campus. And I think it throws a spotlight on a couple of underrepresented um, individuals, which is uh, black uh, LGBTQ college students, uh, their experience. It also focuses on um, historically black uh, universities and colleges, which are not widely depicted and not seen very often or discussed. And uh, one prominent graduate from such a university is our groundbreaking, ceiling-breaking Vice President Kamala Harris, um, who, who has uh, her start from um, a historically black university. So um, it, it, it's an important contributor to our society and important to have the spotlight put on it. The book that we will be talking about again, Black and Queer on Campus, is written by uh, Professor Michael P. Jeffries. Um, he chronicles how black LGBTQ students face particular challenges, including dealing with lack of understanding, or outright rejection from their birth home families while struggling to find mentors that they can trust and spaces on campus where they can be themselves and feel safe. The, um, the book itself draws from in-depth interviews with 65 black LGBTQ plus students, 40 from nine different historically black colleges and universities, and another 25 from seven predominantly white institutions. Um, he is the Dean of Academic Affairs and Class of 1949 Professor in Ethics. Um, he is Professor of American Studies at Wesley College, and he holds a PhD from Harvard University. Um, he is the previous author of three other books on American culture, Thug Life, Race, Gender, and the Meaning of HP Hell, oh, Hip Hop, sorry about that, <laughs> Hip Hop. Paint the House Black, and Barack Obama, The Meaning of Race in America. Um, he has published dozens of essays and works of criticism in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Guardian, Boston Globe, and he's been interviewed by The Washington Post, New York Times, and NPR. And I'm sure being interviewed by rated LGBT radio is the top of his list, um, or will be in just a few minutes. Um, before we turn to Michael, I want to shift focus um, to my co-host, the 
editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Blade, which, by the way, you should read the Los Angeles Blade every single day. It is at losangelesblade.com. Um, and the editor is Brody Levesque, who has some of the breaking news of the day for us right now. Hey, Brody. Okay, Rob. Um, greetings to all of our listeners, and we appreciate all of you for your downloads, your discussions, your sharing. It really makes a difference. Um, in uh, kind of a thematic way with today's uh, discussions with our guest, a new study from the Williams Institute at the University of California, Los Angeles School of Law, which was conducted in collaboration with the Point Foundation, which is the nation's largest LGBTQ scholarship nonprofit. A study released actually today found that uh, twice as many LGBTQ people of color, okay, uh, versus their white counterparts are reporting unfair treatment at school and that being uh, LGBTQ uh, people of color was, in fact, a barrier to their academic success. Uh, the study also determined that LGBTQ people of color are less likely to complete a college degree or certificate. And according to the statistics that the Williams Institute uh, put out there, uh, according to their study that Fewer people of color completed the post-secondary degrees by the age of 25 compared to their white peers. The ratio was 56% versus 70%. Uh, now, this is data uh, taken from the Access to the Higher Educational Survey, uh, which was uh, run in a national study for adults ages 18 to 40. Um, the other part of it, too, that was a little alarming was that the results also showed that one-third of or 33% of LGBTQ people of color had received little or no information about college applications from high school counselors and teachers. And more than a third reported that they received little or no information about college entrance exams, 41%, letters of recommendation, 48%, or financial aid, 41%. Um, Kenneth J. Cornrun, who is a scholar, he's actually the Black Group, uh, Black, Blackford, I never get that right, Cooper Distinguished Scholar, and he's the research director at the Williams Institute, uh, said this, uh, our research shows that more LGBT people of color experience bullying, harassment, and assault in community college and four-year college than their non-LGBTQ peers of color, and at similar levels as the white LGBTQ students. We also found that more LGBTQ people of color are first-generational college students and come from families that had fewer economic resources. This means that colleges and universities need to improve educational environments and ensure the resources and support are in place for LGBTQ students of color during the application process and upon admission and on through in the matriculation to their uh, higher education. Now, that was published, as a matter of fact, today by the Williams Institute. And as a matter of fact, it's sitting on my desk, and it will be up at the Los Angeles Blade in about an hour. So if you want to read that study, or uh, there'll be a link at the bottom of the article, you can click on it, uh, and you can go take a look. Um, in other things, uh, a Trans journalist uh, who uh, 
has written for both the Washington Blade and the Los Angeles Blade, uh, who later uh, went and enlisted in the Ukrainian military, was wounded earlier today in Ukraine. Uh, she has been since evacuated. Uh, the Los Angeles Blade, DC Blade's international editor, Michael Lavers, has been communicating with her, and she has assured us that she's okay, uh, but it uh, it's one of the things that's you know getting a little dicey. Uh, and in California, um, a bill has been put forward into both the Senate and the Assembly. Uh, in the Senate, the chair, who's an LGBTQ ally, Senator Josh Newman, introduced Senate Bill 760. This bill will require all K through 12 schools in California to provide appropriate and equitable access to all gender restrooms for students to use during school hours. Uh, Now, this will offset, obviously, states that don't do that, and it comes about as growing concerns uh, for all of the anti-LGBT and specifically anti-trans legislation we're seeing um, literally across the United States. So it's it's one of the things. Um, there are cities and school districts in the U.S. who have added gender-neutral bathrooms. However, Senator Newman's bill uh, would make California the first to require it in school settings statewide. Uh, Senator Scott Weiner, who's been a guest on this show and is a former chair of the LGBT caucus in uh, Sacramento, signed on as a sponsor. Uh, the bill is also... Uh, co-sponsored by the superintendent of education for the state of uh, California, a member of Governor Gavin Newsom's cabinet. Um, And so hats are off to Secretary Thurmont for his, uh, you know, inclusion there and also, of course, uh, endorsed and supported and sponsored by Equality California. Uh, And let's see, what else are we looking at? Um, Yeah, interestingly enough, and, and I need to point this out. Tennessee's uh, House today passed through a Senate bill that would ban transgender medical care for trans minors, anybody under the age of 18. If Governor Bill Lee signs this thing, which he's expected to do, it will now make Tennessee the fourth state in the United States to completely ban any kind of trans care at all, any gender-affirming care at all whatsoever. Um, at last count, we have about 17 of these bills sitting in state houses all over uh, the U.S. And activists and, and other groups are becoming very, very, very concerned uh, because this trend uh, is causing uh, an uptick uh, in mental health challenges and issues, particularly uh, suicide uh, calls to the Trevor Project and other suicide centers. Um, we see this as just a blatant effort by these state Republican lawmakers to attempt to just erase trans existence. And uh, it's shocking and it's deplorable, but it is uh, the state of where we're at. So Tennessee today, Buddy, we expect it'll go back. We'll yeah, expect it to I go back to the for I, reconciliation. Yeah, I have a question about that. The When these things are, are being passed, I am sort of appalled at the lack of voice coming out of the medical community itself um that it seems very passive and and non-existent even though if you go to the ma website or different advocacy organizations like that they do spell out 
you know, the need for this care, but when this comes up, they seem to have no one to stand up to it or put out a press release or, you know, take a mic in front of the media and say, this is wrong and this is not the area of politicians. It should be the area of medical professionals. Um, what what do you hear about that? Most of the uh, advocacy groups and activists I've spoken to, the, the problem here is that the atmosphere has gotten so toxic that many of these doctors are getting death threats. Their families are getting death threats. Uh, organizations are getting bomb threats and death threats. We saw that at four separate hospital settings, including three of the preeminent children's hospitals in the United States. Uh, and the physicians, quite frankly, are scared. And they're not willing uh, to take that extra step. So it's been left to the LGBTQ plus advocacy community. Um, you know, the medical evidence is there. The AMA and the APA, of course, are supportive. But when you talk about individual, um, you know, physicians and care providers, particularly the hospital settings and the HMOs, they're no longer willing, you know, to essentially make too much noise about it because the vitriol and the hatred and the has just gotten so bad. Uh, the other part of it has to do with litigation. I mean, perfect example. Lawsuit was filed today in the county of San Joaquin in California by a former detransition trans person against the Kaiser Health Foundation and its hospital system. And basically, I'll just boil the suit down. It's alleging gender mutilation and medical malpractice. So that's really what this boils down to. There should be a louder voice. There's not. And this is, of course, part of the problem. Oh, and on that lawsuit, what are its merits and likelihood of it moving, moving ahead? Um, I've already spoken to a couple of legal ex, uh, legal, legal, legal type, no, uh, legal experts. Um, they're not sure it'll actually go too far because it, it's kind of a kitchen sink type of lawsuit. Um, I honestly have to read it all the way through. I've only kind of skipped through it real quick. Um, and it is being filed by a law group that has been listed as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center and has been known for uh, anti-trans extremism. So whether or not a court judge in California is going to buy into it or not, it's anybody's guess. But the legal experts that I'm talking to think it's probably going to get killed on merit. We don't know. It's too early. It just got filed today. Right. And um, if you could briefly comment on this uh, bill that has been introduced in, I believe, Florida, um, that oh, yeah. will make it um, basically put a cap on anybody's ability to call or refer to anybody else as racist or homophobic or transphobic. Um, and so really cutting across and prohibiting First Amendment rights. What is happening with that? The bill was filed uh, with the support of uh, Governor DeSantis. Uh, it's aimed directly at the press. Uh, it very narrowly uh, in scope covers sourcing, which is, as you know, uh, most of us in my business, in my profession, we do this all the time. Um, essentially, 
uh, it would if you feel that you have been maligned by a member of the press corps, uh, then you have the ability to sue on that. The law would no longer protect journalists or their sources, um, and it's blatantly unconstitutional. But the problem is, is that doesn't seem to bother the people that are putting it forward. Uh, it also would make it very difficult to use certain uh, labels in certain situations that, you know, would be under normal circumstances, quite frankly, AP style, um, you know, in, in these cases. So if you're a person of note and you feel you're being defamed, you could literally sue the press outlet and this bill would take away, you know, any protections for sourcing or anything that would be considered conventional under the First Amendment. There's no way this thing's constitutional. I've been told that by multiple experts, including two or three lawyers that I know personally who argue before the high court. We're not sure it's going to get that far, but it will probably be directly challenged. The ink won't even be dry on DeSantis' signature, and that thing's going to be in a federal court across town in Tallahassee. But it's chilling. It's It's another attempt by people like DeSantis to, you know, chill free speech. It's just amazing how closely the conservative movement wants to dance towards fascism um, without any consciousness um, that that's who they're becoming, in in my opinion. So there, yeah. I just call them fascists. So, that's pretty much what they are. Okay. All right. Thanks, Brody. Okay. So we're going to move ahead. um, And with that, uh, I want to welcome to the show, waiting patiently in our wings, uh, Michael P. Jeffries. And he is the author of a new upcoming book, Black and Queer on Campus. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Um, Before we segue into the book, what was your reaction to the Williams Institute study um, that Brody was talking about it during the news segment? Well, none of this stuff is really too surprising, unfortunately. I mean, I think part of the uh, context here is, uh, first, you know, when it comes to college choice, there are a lot of factors that everyone has to consider, and that goes for uh, all students, regardless of their identity. But what we know about college choice is that people who have uh, disadvantages, whether it's socioeconomic disadvantages or people who are impacted by racism, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, have a much different time with the college selection process. And the folks that we think would be responsible for guiding students through those choices are not always there. I'm talking about guidance counselors, teachers. Many of the students in my book, in fact, um, didn't really mention uh, some of the most important figures from their high schools as key figures in guiding them through college choices. They They relied on their family. They relied on word of mouth, things they'd heard through friends. Uh, But what we have here is an institutional failure. It's an institutional failure in secondary education, and it's an institutional failure uh, just all the way down the line. We're we're missing out on the opportunity to bring so many talented and bright young people uh, to enroll in our colleges and universities. Uh, So it's a problem that we have to face. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, One of the things we're talking about institutional failure um, it feels like a lot of the school funding principles across the country, I know in just in from a class structure and an economic structure, 
has traditionally been where funds get channeled to the richer, more well-to-do neighborhoods and less so to other neighborhoods. Um, how do you see that potentially rectifying? Well, that's a difficult question to answer. I mean, we've had uh, issues with public education in this country for a very long time. There's a great promise in public education, right? It's the promise that's based on the notion that when we invest in ourselves uh, and invest in knowledge as a public good, the entire society benefits. When you look at how dollars are distributed in our public education system, it's very much, as you said, neighborhood dependent. And by many measures, uh, our public education system is actually more segregated today by race than it was uh, 40 or 50 years ago. So we haven't made a lot of progress on that front. And of course, when you're talking about race, you're actually talking about the overlay of race and socioeconomic class, right? And I want to be careful here because the stereotype that all black folks are poor is simply not true. But what we see, right, is that black folks are disproportionately poor, right, when you look at the percentage of people in poverty who happen to be black. And what that means is that these folks are going to schools that don't have uh, the resources they need, resources in terms of instruction, uh, resources in terms of uh, health and safety, and all of those uh, shortages of resources result in inequities across the line, whether you're talking about employment, matriculation to college, or graduation from high school itself. So how do we fix that? I mean, I, I, I think that further privatizing the school system is not the way to go. We need a sustained right. and redoubled commitment to true public education and desegregation. Right, yeah. And do you feel like desegregation has, I know back a couple of decades ago, um, there was attempts at desegregation with, uh, especially in the LA area of busing and everything else. and with huge, huge opposition and fight. And it seems like rather than deal with perfecting the system to to accommodate that, it just got dropped altogether. I mean, is the movement just non-existent anymore to attempt to fix it? Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I think that one of the tricky things about this is the federal government has very little enforcement power when it comes to desegregation. So what you're really talking about is more localized efforts, which get challenged in courts all the time. Um, and, and it's always been that way. But I think right now, uh, when you kind of look down the line of political priorities, things that people are upset about when it comes to local politics, it doesn't even seem to be a top shelf issue, right? I mean, you and I could rattle off a number of other things, whether it's uh, public health in the pandemic, uh, reproductive health and women's rights, LGBTQ plus rights, police violence, g gun laws. I mean, all of these things seem to have captured our attention so much more than residential segregation, including segregation in our education system. So it hasn't been a great moment for that movement. I think you're right to point it out. Right. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because uh, hearing Brody talk about the Women's Institute study, um, I, had not, I had not read that or heard of it before he mentioned it, but it was very reminiscent of a lot of issues you bring up in, in your book, um, Black and Queer on Campus. Uh, what motivated you to go to this particular subject? You, you covered in your books before, um, you've covered the kind of the thug culture um, perception, you've covered um, Barack Obama and the White House, You've covered um, comedians and, you know, racial inclusion or racial expression through comedy. Um, why now shifting to LGBTQ and colleges? 
Yeah, thanks for the question. I think in, in some way, shape, or form, all of my books are really about the relationship between some kind of institution and the culture that we see play out within those institutional contexts, in particular the culture as it pertains to racial identity and racism. Right? Everything I've done, whether it's the music industry and perceptions of blackness or uh, the, the entertainment industry and performances of comedians, right? that's always sort of what I'm working with. But why this topic and why now? Uh, first, I think, again, context, the political context is so important, right? I, I started, the seed for this book was really taking, you know, really kind of took shape and began to sprout um, in the midst of a tremendous uproar about police violence directed at black people in this country, right? And if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, the folks who were at the head of that movement were queer black women. So that's the starting mm-hmm. point right there, right? That you look at Black Lives Matter, you look at the leadership of that movement, you see queer black folk at the vanguard, right, at the front. So that's one thing. Secondly, I'm a college professor, and in my classes I have a number of queer black students who had relayed some of their experiences to me in some shape or form over my time, uh, over my career here. So I was already sort of aware of the kinds of things they were dealing with, and of course the scholarship that I focused on is kind of sociology of race and gender, so I was already kind of vaguely aware of it, but it just felt like a time when there was also an increased visibility and black pop cultural celebrity at the same time as these other political things were playing out, whether we're talking about the rise of folks like Lena Waithe and Billy Porter, who I discussed in the book, or uh, movies like Moonlight and the popularity of that film, or uh, any number of, of kind of pop culture celebrities that had risen. There's a confluence then of a moment of celebration in pop culture, a moment of kind of dire desperation with Black Lives Matter led by queer black folk, and just an energy on campus around the organization of queer black students. And all of those things were sort of swirling around me when I first started thinking about writing it. So that was really my motivation for taking on the subject. Yeah, fascinating. Um, one of the things, and you start right, right at the very beginning of the book with this, and I actually found it um, both refreshing and intriguing in its visibility is um, the historical black colleges and universities. Um, you know, I remember in the 80s, there were different sitcoms that were kind of set in those venues and were kind of helpful in giving visibility, um, but it sort of disappeared since then. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that, and how do you see them being placed in American culture today? Great question. Well, I think, I think the first thing to say is, you know, for black folks, right, these, this experience of going to HBCUs and knowing friends and family members who attend these places, this is not new to us, right? So even though it disappeared from what we might call like mainstream popular culture, uh, this college experience is commonplace among black people and in black families, right? So it's always been central to our idea of what college is. That's the first piece of it. I think right. secondly, uh, what we've seen, right, what we've seen recently is among the HBCUs that have done pretty well over the past, you know, five to 10 years, we've seen an increased interest in young people wanting to go to those campuses because of, you can't make a direct line, no one's shown causation yet, but it's been theorized by uh, people like Walter Kimbrough and others. Kimbrough was president of Dillard University at the time I was writing the book, Dillard's an HBCU in uh, Louisiana. It's been theorized, right, that because of the overt racism that we've seen in politics, the increased visibility and awareness of police violence directed toward black people, that more black students are seeking out that kind of educational setting. Why? Because we know, right, and we do have the evidence that points to this, that 
there are better mental health outcomes, that those places send more black folk to uh, medical school and PhDs in the sciences uh, on a person-per-person basis than predominantly white universities. So there's a lot going right at HBCUs, right? There's a kind of protective factor, a family factor, a family com- and, and familial and comfortable factor that presents itself when we start looking at these places as, as places that we might want to go. Uh, so, so I think that's, that's a big piece of this is that the reasons to go to HBCUs are as strong for those of us who've been interested as they ever have been. And it doesn't hurt, certainly, that Kamala Harris, right, uh, is an HBCU grad. She's given a visibility to Howard University um, that I'm sure uh, the university quite appreciates, uh, given all of the attacks on higher education these days. Right, absolutely. And um, like I said at the beginning, you, you talked to 40, 40 of the people that you interviewed and are represented um, were from HBCUs, and then 25 were from the predominantly white institutions. Um, just on that level alone, what did you see as the difference between the experience of the 25 versus the 40? Yeah, yeah, thanks for the question. And, and I don't want to draw, like, really – uh, bright lines between these groups and say that this comparison, well, I, what I saw in the book is uniform. It can be applied perfectly in terms of the difference between one and the other. But I'll just tell you what I saw among the people that I spoke with. Right. You know, I, I think for the folks at HBCUs, uh, the first thing to say is they experienced far less racism on a day-to-day basis than the students did at, at predominantly white universities. That, that's an obvious and kind of intuitive thing to suspect, but that really is true. And when I say racism, I mean the comfort they felt walking around the town, the way they felt they were treated by classmates and the people they lived in the dorms with, um, you know, instances where they were being shouted at or harassed on the street. Again, this was during the Trump administration and many white supremacists were emboldened to harass people during that time. So that's the first big difference is less, fewer experiences with overt racism among students at HBCUs. Uh, when it came to uh, the experiences that more, are more directly connected with their LGBTQ plus identity, what I didn't find was a kind of constant culture of fear on HBCU campuses or a sense of danger or a sense of resentment among all of their black classmates. But there was a sense that um, the institutions weren't really affirming them, weren't really highlighting their experiences, weren't doing enough to support them. I had some students say that they felt like kind of almost like the burden of educating their campus about LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. issues fell on the students rather than falling on the leadership of the college or university. So I think that's kind of one thing that stood out about the HBCU experience for LGBTQ plus folk versus those at PWIs was, on the HBCU campuses, there was just a, there was a calling out for more visibility and more institutional support, almost like they wanted the institution to kind of catch up with the times. Do you, do you kind, of, kind of know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't that they yeah. felt unsafe, right? It wasn't that they felt unsafe or rejected, but just that they didn't feel like the institutions were really up to date and supportive. Yeah, no, I think that that's very true. Um, one thing I want to point out, a couple things I want to point out. One is I think you do a really – responsible job in the book by pointing out that it is not, you know, at statistical numbers, that this isn't a statistical study, you know, and and not to make assumptions based on that. This is very much anecdotal, you know, responses to real interviews and real people and their their particular experiences. Um, The other thing is, is of the 65 people that you interviewed, there's quite a lot of diversity in that group, 
just based on their the diversity within their LGBTQ plus identities. I mean, it's you know, it's the the challenges that we all face under the the broad acronym, you know, are, are very similar. However, they're not identical, and some of it is more pronounced for some people than in some areas that it is for others. Also, you know, historically, and and I think this is speaking to what you were just talking about, some of that the experiences are new or or newly um, have new awareness um, and new expression, whereas some of them, uh, you know, go back to Stonewall, for example. Yeah. Um, how did you see that differentiation from, for example, the non-binary people you interviewed, the queer people, the gay people, the lesbian people, the bisexuals, the pan people, you know, those, that diversity impact your responses and your, your impressions? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm so glad you raised this. I really think this is one of the most important takeaways from the book, which is the tremendous diversity that exists within the category of LGBTQ plus and black LGBTQ plus people. And it's diversity just within the ways they talk about their gender identity and sexuality, as you described. I mean, folks identifying as uh, bisexual, non-binary, pansexual, queer, queer, trans, lesbian, gay, anything and everything in between, right? I mean, so many different labels that they applied to themselves. And there's also an intersecting diversity of black experiences that gets layered on top of the diversity of the LGBTQ plus experiences, right? So you have some of the folks that I spoke with who are black um, and they come from uh, family backgrounds where they don't have a whole lot of money. Others come from family backgrounds where they've been privileged. Some are quite religious. Others are not as religious. Some have strong ties to their ethnic origins that may have come from other countries. Others are truly kind of African-American and don't have ethnic or national lineages that they kind of hold on to from other countries. So that spectrum of diversity was really breathtaking for me, right, in, in just speaking with these people because it makes the stereotypes so silly, right? But when you think of like the most readily available stereotypes of black folk, of queer folk, and of queer black folk, you can't put one stereotype on this collection of 65 people that I spoke with. So I really hope that's one thing that people get from the book is, right, we, we, we need to understand this group in all of its richness and all of its diversity rather than relying on stereotypes or what we think we heard about black folk or black homophobia or queer black folk or what we saw on television or in that one movie. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and, I, I think, and I think you do a wonderful job of that. Um, in the book, because it's it's an introduction to individuals, and to me that is where I think we get understanding. Um, you know, it's like to me, I'm I am absolutely adverse to generalizations, stereotypes, all that. Uh, to me, I look at those like broken clocks. They maybe write twice a day, you know, but that's it. You know, it's like they're they're not um, they're not they're lazy. They're intellectually lazy. They keep people from actually looking into realities. Um, I just got back from the um, uh, Creating Change conference that is put on by the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, and 
this is this is a conference where within a, a presumably LGBTQ community, we were all learning about each other and the very specifics. And I mean, it was you know very enlightening and and um, and and confusing at, at different points. Um, one thing that you just mentioned that hadn't occurred to me, and it was sort of like really stupid that it hadn't, but a lot of people that I ran into there identified as, for example, first-generation Ethiopian, you know, first-generation. Yeah. And, and it, it, you know, as they did that, I, it was sort of like, oh, that's an interesting identification. But then when I realized, it's like, okay, then what they're actually identifying is don't confuse me with somebody who has the legacy of having, you know, slave ancestors and that legacy behind them. Um, and I think that's important. What What is your viewpoint on those distinctions? Well, I think that, you know, for the people that I spoke with, one of the things when I asked them why they became interested in attending HBCUs, one of the things that they talked about on more than one occasion was, the kind of visible black diversity that they saw when they visited the campuses. And I think that for those students was a big strength because they saw, right, instead of a situation where there were kind of a few black folk in almost like a, a sea of, a white, of, of whiteness in a campus, right, they saw a, a, the possibility that they could be black on campus in any way they wanted to, right? Now, now even if the folks they saw weren't uh, weren't expressing themselves in a way that made their LGBTQ plus identity really, really clear during the visit, the fact that they were able to see other forms of diversity, I think, opened up the possibility in those students' minds that I could really be myself here as a black person in a way that might be more difficult if there were fewer of us on a white campus. So I think that's where it kind of struck me is, the fact of black diversity was enabling for some students who really weren't quite sure what it would be like to attend an HBCU as a queer black person. Right. Uh, I wanted to pivot a little bit. We've got kind of questions in all different areas, but um, one of the areas you go into in the book is perception on black Christians, black churches versus white churches and, and white Christians, which by the way, in reading that, those perceptions I are not my perceptions. It's like because I see huge heinous crap coming out of white churches, and I would not excuse them in any way or think that they were more pro LGBTQ than than any other churches, black or otherwise. But what where is where does the stereotype type come from around black churches? And um, what do you feel that is, and how do you feel like you're fighting it through the book? Yeah, this is, a, this is a complex question and a really, really good one. So I think the first thing to say is that when we look at the history of institutionalized Christianity in this country, it's patriarchal, right? No matter what denomination you're talking about, institutionalized Absolutely. Christianity in this country is patriarchal, right? It's male-dominated. There's an emphasis on a certain version of masculinity as controlling and powerful, and other people who don't fit in that, in that mold are expected to be subservient and uphold the gender, the gender roles, right? So that's across the board. 
Then I think when you look at the history of black churches in this country, they have been incredible forces for black liberation and social change. They've been sites of politics. They've been sites of uh, repair and respite and protection for black people, physical protection I'm talking about for black people mm-hmm. when terrorism and violent terrorism in public, right, was a day-to-day reality. Um, and they've been sources of validation for uh, black creative expression in all of its forms, right, whether it's rhetoric, music, song, etc. Um, and, right, what we know historically, and in particular, there's a great book about this called The Boundaries of Blackness, written by a political scientist called Kathy Cohen, about black churches' response to the AIDS moment, <laughs> the explosion in AIDS and HIV coverage, at least, in the 1980s. And what Cohen mm-hmm. describes is a situation where black churches were afraid to take on the reality of HIV and AIDS within black communities, right, to stand up as advocates and say, this is a problem that's disproportionately affecting our constituency because they were so wedded to a politics of respectability, right? Part of the appeal of black religiosity and public performances of it is that the performance of this morally respectable religiosity, right, pushes back against the stereotype of the kind of the dangerous black criminal, right? It's a very simplistic way to think about what the politics of respectability is, but nevertheless, this is a part of the kind of strategy of public performance of black religiosity, for better or worse, way for generations. So I think that when you see then and when you hear criticisms and condemnations of homophobia, in particular in black church contexts, Certainly there's a, there's, a, there's a habit of sort of pointing toward the scripture as part of an issue, as part of the issue. But it's also, it also has a lot to do with the concern about appearing respectable so that we can't, we as black folk can't be taken to task or pinned with that stereotype of, of uh, immoral, criminal, et cetera, et cetera. So in a way to fight back against that racism, we turn to respectability, but respectability often raises a whole new host of problems, especially when it comes to the rights and dignity afforded to women, LGBTQ plus folk, and so many other people who are marginalized within the black community. Right. No, I definitely can see that. And it, it is ironic because I guess for me, when I think of black churches, I think of the birth of the civil rights movement. Um, to your point, um, so much of our, our music is influenced really from the, the black churches. I mean, it's like some of our greatest artists started in black churches. And, you know, it's like it, it's, if you watch any of the, the vocal competition shows, you know, some of the most talented up there, you know, started in church, you know, and they're black yep. churches, not not even as much from the white churches. Um, I guess we're somewhat musical, but not nearly enough um, for, for that to happen. Um, two factors I wanted to ask you about. One is I know at a certain point um, there was an actual strategy um, on the part of, you know, the, the right wing to try to pit groups against each other. And I think it was probably around the marriage equality timeframe where they literally were trying to portray, you know, the black community as being anti-gay and, you know, um, put, put those rifts. Was that a real factor or just kind of media hype? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I, I think that sort of strategy, right, 
deployed often by right-wing political organizations has been tried and tested for a very long time, right? This notion, and, and I think in particular when it comes to issues pertaining to gay rights, right, it's a, it's a really easy politics of misdirection and distraction, right? Because if we can, first of all, if we can end up uh, riling up support for repressive measures directed toward LGBTQ plus people among black folks, right, it adds to the support we already have from our base. So what we try to do is, you know, scare uh, black communities with uh, rhetoric about the dissolution of the family and the destruction of the black family, et cetera, et cetera. What it also does, though, is it encourages white liberals, right, to, who are in favor of LGBTQ plus rights, white liberals and other non-black folk who are mm-hmm. in favor of LGBTQ plus rights, to look at, look toward the black community and say, that's the reason, right, that we can't ever get, get enough done on LGBTQ plus rights because those black folk are standing up against it, right? So it, it's, it's a way to blame, right, black people, for um, the difficulty in achieving progress in LGBTQ plus rights and distract us from the core reasons, right? We understand the institutionalized history of homophobia in this country, right? We understand the laws on the books. You just talked about the ongoing legal attacks on trans folk, right? We understand the history in the medical establishment, right, where um, uh, sexuality was pathologized as a disease, for until very recently. I mean, we're talking right. three dec- you know, four decades ago, right? So we understand there's an institutionalized history, but if we can distract people from the institutionalized history by pointing toward black folk as the reason we can't get anything done, then it works really, really well, right, for those of us who want to keep the status quo. So I think that's the broader strategy we have to keep in mind when we get the explanation that black homophobia is somehow more virulent or more responsible for holding up gay rights than all these other forces. Right. No, absolutely. And I know there was a lot of um, that kind of rhetoric after uh, Prop 8 um, passed in California and in the very exact same election where uh, Barack Obama was elected. And that it's sort of like you take two high-level facts and throw them together and you come up with some erroneous conclusions between the two. I mean, nobody looked at the fact that, you know, the, the Mormon church opened their spigots and, and poured, you know, billions of dollars into the, the, the efforts um, in California. But it was like, okay, we elected a black president, but, you know, an LGBTQ issue went down. Um, yeah, you know, therefore, you know, and that, that kind of thing. I, w- I want to pivot because otherwise you know, there's some important things about the book that I want to bring out before we, we lose our time here. Um, you know, your objectives in writing the book were um, to present the day-to-day experiences of black LGBTQ plus college students, um, the roles of the organizations um, that the LGBTQ uh, plus organizations on their campuses, and um, I, I think we've already talked about the the HBCUs versus um, uh, PWIs. But um, what what were some of the poignant day to day experiences of the um, 65 people that you presented that stand out for you? Yeah. So one of the things I write about. Uh, quite a bit in the book is 
why it's important to focus our attention on some of the ordinary things that the people in the book go through, both positive and negative. I think most of the time our mind goes to some of the negative things, right? The, you know, struggles with microaggressions or uh, just, you know, being, a, being away from your family for the first time and having to navigate your family's expectations versus your own hopes and dreams for yourself as an individual or dealing with racism or whatever it might be. There's a whole bunch of negative day-to-day experiences that the people in the book are dealing with. But also um, there are so many mundane and ordinary positive things that the students told me about. And I really try to bring those up to the surface in writing the book. So what kinds of things do I mean? I mean, the experience of um, going to a gay club for the first time, something that someone would have never had the chance to do in high school, either because uh, they hadn't developed that part of their identity yet, or their parents would never have approved of it, they were afraid. But being away at college and going to do that for the first time, being in an LGBTQ plus space like that for the first time is a huge and ordinary victory, right, for so many of the people I spoke with. Uh, participating in student government, for example, right, even if the issues they're debating in student government don't have anything to do on a given day with LGBTQ plus issues, the experience of being part of that student organization, of feeling like you have some influence and control over your institution that's a big win. That's a big step in your development as a young person. Going to a museum for the first time, um, having a, doing well on your math, studying with a friend of yours and both of you doing well on the math test for the first time. Um, those kinds of day-to-day experiences among the queer black folk I, I spoke with in the book are, are so, so important in their lives. They become stepping stones. They become confidence builders. So, so when I talk about the ordinary and day-to-day experiences of the people in the book, I'm not just talking about the ordinary racism, the ordinary homophobia, the ordinary transphobia. I'm talking about the very ordinary victories, the mundane victories, the mundane moments of contentedness and enjoyment that they get from being in the company of other queer black folk and how powerful those moments can be. Uh, yeah, no, definitely. One of the things that you talk about is, the fabulous fly versus, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, uh, queer, quotidian, um, sort of the, the uh, personality adoption, if you will, of being big, bold, fabulous, uh, you know, maybe even slightly outrageous versus being more centered and, and to your point, average and fitting in. Um, can you give a little, perspective between the two? Yeah, yeah. So I think the first thing it's important to understand is that, you know, this tradition of very sort of commercialized and spectacular queer fabulousness that we see everywhere in pop culture now, right? I mean, I don't even have to give you examples, right? There are deep roots, right, in black and brown performances of queerness, right? So there, in that tradition of fabulousness. Um, and what we see in the celebration of that sort of uh, style of self-presentation sometimes, right, is an erasure of uh, black and brown history, right? So that's one thing that's important to say, right? Number two, um, I think it's also important to note that, uh, you know, queer black folk, may feel fabulous and fly at some moments and give performances like that in some moments and then in other moments, right, have experiences that are 
more reserved and present themselves as sort of quieter and, and more introverted. And they hold both of those parts of their personality and their lives in balance with each other, right? And so, so I think that when I was speaking earlier about the diversity uh, throughout the spectrum of queer black experiences, there's also diversity within each of the people that I spoke with, right? Some of them are mm-hmm. more introverted most of the time, but they love to go out and have a big night every once in a while. Some of them are more extroverted most of the time. I, mean, I had some people that were, you know, the easiest interviews you ever had, where you ask one question and they just go on for 30 minutes, right? It makes my job so much easier, right? But, but in the course of those interviews, in the course of those very extroverted 30 minutes, the kinds of things they were telling me they love to do, cooking, sewing, right? Those are like, quote, unquote, boring, ordinary things. So what I'm trying right. to do is show, right, right I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do is show, like, the, the tradition of black queer fabulousness and flyness does not erase the possibility that the same folk might enjoy more quiet and ordinary uh, black queer experiences. And, and, again, get us to attend to the multiple possibilities of black queerness that exist within every person and certainly throughout the queer black community. I'm, I'm just wondering if some of the fabulous fly uh, – one, I, and I'll segue back to this. Um, I interviewed um, Brandon Goodwin, who's a, an actor, L.A.-based actor, um, uh, a while back on the show. And we talked about how um, part of his exhaustion being an African-American personality is, uh, you know, so many of the rooms he goes into, he's fully conscious that he has to represent and that, that he is, in his mind, he is constantly you know, aware of that he is the black person in the room and having to, you know, that, that the rest of the people in the room probably don't understand him. And I relate to that from just my, my being gay for being in rooms where I'm the only gay person and, you know, I'm dealing with that as well. Um, a lot of the fabulous and fly behavior to me seems like it's breaking through that. It's like where I'm not going to yeah. worry about that anymore. In fact, I am going to yes. exhibit in a very big way. You know, so screw any of your questions or screw your uncomfortableness of who I am. I'm just going to be bold and lay myself out there. Um, did you detect that from the people you talked to? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the, that kind of description of why be so fabulous, right, that is something that um, as an author and, and speaker and activist called Madison Moore, and they write about this in their book, this fabulousness as a dangerous and confrontational, right, form of performance, where you're making a spectacle of yourself because you refuse to be silenced, right? You, re- you refuse to kind of give in to the patriarchy and the sexism and the homophobia and the racism, right? Just like you said, you're saying, screw it. This is who I am. I'm bold. I'm beautiful. Deal with it. That's absolutely true. And for many people, it's absolutely necessary, right? Like I'm not saying we sh- they shouldn't or, or nobody should kind of embrace that mode of being. All I'm saying is that, right, when we think that's the only way to be as a queer black person, we're missing the diversity of experience and mm-hmm. the range of moods and priorities that really make up uh, queer black communities and queer black folks. So I want to be careful not to say there's anything you know, wrong or uh, sort of uh, misguided about that, right? We, we all know how valuable that is. And, right, can we keep and hold space for the more ordinary dimensions of queer black life? 
because that's the way the people in the book describe themselves, right? This isn't really about what I want as someone who wrote the book. Like I asked them, how do you describe yourself? And they describe themselves in very ordinary terms. So what I'm trying to do here is compile those responses and honor those descriptions. And this is how I kind of came up with to talk about it. Uh, absolutely brilliant point. And it just occurs to me how a lot of the things we talked about in the beginning of the show of these different oppressions, and I don't even know if we mentioned the, the current dra- anti-drag uh, legislations that are happening and all of that, but it does seem to be the conservative response to the assertiveness of we are yes. here, you know, we're queer and we're not going anywhere. It's like, well, yes, you are. We're going to try to erase you um, kind of thing. Uh, Michael, we're almost running out of time. We absolutely need to do the house cleaning uh, or the housekeeping stuff is when is the book coming out? Where can people get it? And uh, what's next? Well, you can get it at all your famous books, all of your favorite booksellers, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, the book is published by NYU Press. So you can go directly to the NYU Press website. And the publication date is uh, March 21st, but it's available for pre-order right now. So you can go to your favorite booksellers right now and pick it up. So go, go get it. It is, um, immensely readable. Um, you know, I found it engaging, you know, every story. Um, you know, it's like you, you feel like you're in the room with the person and um, getting to know them. Um, Michael, thank you so much for being you and the work you do. Um, super, super valuable and appreciated. And thank you for joining us today on the show. Um, very much appreciate you being here. Please do check out the book. Again, it is Black and Queer on Campus. Um, And to Michael's point, go order it right now. Do not procrastinate. Do it now. Um, And with that, I want to also thank Brody Levesque for his work on the show um, and on the Los Angeles Blade. Um, You can read that publication at losangelesblade.com. Please do check that out um, every day. Um, It's got new, well-written, well-researched stories, and uh, we appreciate your patronage of that. And to tell your friends about this show, we will be back again next week. Um, Actually, we do have quite of the shows pre-booked, but I have poor memory, and I don't remember what they are, but I do know they are wonderful, informative, and you need to listen. So with that, and thank you from all of us at Rated LGBT Radio, we will talk to you again very, very soon. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 